Welcome to the Seventh Art Podcast, a podcast on cinema. We're also a video magazine on cinema, which you can view at www.theseventhart.org. My name is Brian Robertson. I'm a producer on the show, and joining me is Christopher Heron, who is a producer and host of the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brian. So uh, the interview you're about to hear is an interview with Canadian filmmakers Matt Johnson and producer Matthew Miller. And they're responsible for the film The Dirties, which won the Best Narrative Feature at Slamdance in uh, January 2013 and has gone on to pick up a number of other festival prizes um, and was picked up by Kevin Smith for his Phase 4 films uh, and is now available on VOD. It's a film about school shootings um, that was shot over a long period of time but coincidentally when it was released the Sandy Hook uh, incident occurred uh, which drew a lot of attention to the film. Yeah, I think uh, that they were actually like really concerned that uh, the film wasn't going to get into uh, Slam Dance that year. But um, everyone who's seen the film at the at the festival really loved it, and they ins- they uh, they insisted that Matt uh, and Matthew know and understand that this it would play. And the film is uh, is an extension of, of Matt Johnson's uh, Nirvana: The Band, The Show web series project, which um, was a comedy. The the topic's not the same, but the style is very similar, which is that it is a faux documentary that is very referential. And we talk about some of those reference points, uh, both Matt and Matthew are, are real cinephiles with a, a, a large body of uh, knowledge that they draw upon and uh, it, it adds to the complexity of the film not just in those references but in some of the meta qualities of the film that we discuss uh, and we also discuss a very candid way the Canadian film industry in particular in Toronto and uh, they say a lot of uh, really interesting things on that topic. Right. I think you'll enjoy this very amusing free-flowing conversation. Yeah, so Matt Johnson, Matthew Miller, enjoy. was to find somebody who would be able to just exist with us for two months and have the real feelings that Owen, the character, would really have. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we doing this? This is a waste of my time. Like, <laughs> this is stupid. Because eventually, as the movie goes on, that's all that his character is expressing, which is very much in line with how the real Owen really felt. Because, I mean, a lot of those, those two big blow-ups that he has, like, those aren't, none of them are scripted. Mm-hmm. He's just... I mean, obviously he knows that he's performing, but they're coming from, from a very, very real, real place. place. Yeah. Like, that's exactly how he feels. So, Is that a dynamic you used in, in Nirvana as it's well? It's the exact same. <laughs> so you just even, and even with people who don't know they're on camera with us, we do that same trick. You, you approach people on their level like where you... Because you know what somebody's going to say before you talk to them normally. Like, so say those kids at the very beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. When... When we went up to them, we knew they were excited about making a movie, and we knew that they were, they were enamored because they saw that we had cameras too, and they thought, oh, wow. So you knew that they were going to want to talk to us about it. So so long as you don't bring your agenda to them, people will normally say whatever it is that they're going to say, and they'll normally say it perfectly. Like, they'll act better than you could ever tell somebody to act because that's just how they are. So so long as you give them that space to do that, and then you try to twist it, with whatever plot it is that you're trying to put into it, you can get away with murder. <laughs> literally, we, literally. Yeah, literally. That's exactly what we did with Owen. Like, we would get to these points, and whenever he 
would do something real or bring something that seemed very genuine, we would just roll on that and the scene would change to whatever he was reacting to. And, and Doan was a godsend because we, we couldn't find, like this movie literally was on the shelf for a year because we had auditioned like 100 guys and we couldn't find we couldn't find the right guy to sort of bounce off of uh, Matt. The Jay, who had done Jay. it in, in Nirvana the Band, he, was, he just he looked too old. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we could pass Matt off as a high school student, but we couldn't pat, pass off Matt and Jay. And so by, by finding Owen, who actually looks even younger, <laughs> it makes Matt look younger, yep. um, which really helped us. And, uh, and it was just it was a gift that Matt called me one day. He's like, I, I found him. I found the guy. There's this guy, Owen. And he sounds like me. That was the pitch. The other producer, Evan Morgan, is his best friend. And he said, you know, there's this guy I know, he's a teacher, but he sounds so much like you. I've always thought that. And then I met him and I was like, oh, he's perfect. And we just cast him without with no audition, nothing. And we started shooting the movie. But, but we had you guys hang out like for like a, six a months. lot of yeah. time. I got him a job teaching where I was teaching at the Ontario Science Center. And so he and I would hang out at work for, you know, eight hours a day for four or five months just to try to learn the same inside jokes. Same inside jokes is very important to us because it's good shorthand. I'm still trying to figure them out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is this like an approach that you would use moving forward, like like non non actors six month uh, immersion therapy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This next film we want to make with Owen again, but it's about it takes place in the 1960s. Mm. So we're doing all the same tricks, but the approach is very different because like we can't just walk down the street and find random people and put them in the movie without them knowing. Mm. Like, it needs to be very specific. It all takes place between like the CIA and NASA bases in Cape Canaveral and Houston. So we're doing all the same things with real people, with real scientists, with like adults at their job, and us approaching them as though we're approaching them in the world of a documentary. But we just need to be a bit more careful about it. But we're excited about it. We think, that we think that's a very interesting challenge to try to make a found footage film all in the 1960s but in the modern day, like, uh, because if we can pull it off, it'll, I think, be very uh, compelling to watch. Yeah. Because you won't know, like, because in as much as in the dirties, you don't know what's real and what's not real, that, that layer is going to be even thicker and more robust if the entire world mm. is 1968. Um, so. And I always rather work with non-actors than real, like, unless you have, you know, like, Clooney and Street, like, you know, I think that in-between world of low-budget filmmaking and they all acting, suck. it's, yeah. you know, I'd rather work with real people who, who just are very natural. And, and patient. People who are patient, who are willing to do, you know, And who don't have, takes. like, tricks and tools and methods. Because mm -hmm. unless those are, like, really honed, if you've really honed in on them and, and you're amazing, which there are a lot of amazing actors, but they're few and far between. And so I, I think, you know, just real people who have that ability to be themselves on camera are far more interesting. Because the worst thing you can get we find is the actor who who is still trying to prove themselves as an actor mm. and that is very much in their head whenever they're in a scene or in a moment they're very much trying to you know get get at the emotion of the scene or get at the beats of the scene or or explicate not in an overt way like you would in the theater but explicate in some way to camera that they think is going to be helping the filmmaking process when that's the exact opposite of the mm. kinds of films that we want to make the exact opposite. We want to do films where the explication is completely invisible, um, and uh, which is really tricky in this method because there's there's no script. So um, so there's the structure and the, and the skeleton, and the bones. But if you get somebody in there who just wants to hear themselves talk and has mm -hmm. a lot to say, that's like 
or has ideas it. for the scene. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking for empty vessels. Yeah, we're looking just for people like, who are just going to be there reacting to whatever is happening and when we don't even know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know what I'm going to say before I say it. I have no idea. And maybe I say something that is catchy or has or makes the crew react in a certain way, and we need other people on camera who aren't going to either laugh at that or try to turn that into something, mm. but just be in that moment. Or if an old man walks up to us and asks us what happened, like, they're not going to freak out and say, oh, I, you know, I just got hit by a rock. That's what you like. It's not, it, it, it happens in a totally organic way where they're just there, which is, which is in one sense very, very easy to do because you get people who don't care on camera. You don't need to give any directions. Everybody just sort of does their thing. But it's also very hard because peeling down uh, the ego of most people on camera is next to impossible. For me, too, it's really hard. But the coolest thing to watch on set, like w when we're working, is because Matt's almost always on camera in the scene, and to watch him direct from within the scene just by saying shit that he he knows how people will react, or he he hopes and thinks that they're going to react in a certain way. So he'll have an idea and he'll just run with it simply by in character saying something that would get Owen or or whoever, or or usually like the people who didn't know that they were on camera when, when we shot. Like if you watch that first scene of the movie with those two kids, you know they just happened to be in the park. It was like this incredible serendipitous moment, and he went up to them, and the way he engages them and invites them into the scene is is amazing, and and you know like it's it's a gift and a talent that not everybody I think could do, and uh, you know like it, it's it, the movie wasn't directed in a traditional sense, but it was it was directed from inside the scene a lot of the times yeah. in the moment, just like taking the situation, staying in character. And, and running with it, and uh, I think that's quite a talent, Matt. Oh, thank you. Well, most people didn't even know I was exactly. in charge of making the movie at all. <laughs> exactly. Especially when we were in schools, I was just, because the goal was to make everybody think we were just high school students. Yeah. So we would be shooting with this huge cafeteria, all of extras, so to speak, from that school, who were like, okay, we're going to be in a movie, but nobody knew that I was, you know, going to be deciding what was going to happen, and nobody knew that Owen was like a major part of it. So we would just be in these rooms, with everybody kind of waiting for something to happen. And in that waiting, we would shoot the scenes. So in the classrooms when everybody was waiting, we would shoot the scenes. When everybody was kind of holding, waiting for the real movie to start, is when we would shoot our movie, which is very small and takes place between two characters, whispering mostly. Um, and that's, that's sort of, that was our approach on this, and it's definitely going to be our approach with this, with this next film. Um, just because it's so cool. Cool. And so part of the trick also is using like no, no crew, tiny cameras. Mm -hmm. You know, there were like three people there, and wireless um, microphones. Yeah. So nobody knows it's a movie. Yeah. So, so with that being said, like the dirties, the the title, the, the that group of people, are they just aggro assholes, or did you have to kind of direct them? It's a mix. Yeah. It's a mix. So some sometimes, like when we're in school, um, and we're getting bullied, like that's just happening in the environment <laughs> because we would because we would you know aggravate people, or we, or sometimes the producers would say. Like, you know, go do this to a random student in a school. But then, the, like, the bigger scenes, like, those are staged. Like, obviously, the ending is, is very much set up. Um, and the scenes of bullying right at the head are set up. But they're set up in a certain way. Like, the, the dirties know what's going on. Mm. In fact, that main guy who, who bullies me at the beginning of the mm. film is the guy who came up with the whole idea for the movie. Oh, okay. Um, but the people around us, like all the students around us, they have no idea what's about to happen. Like they have no clue, and so they're they're reacting, and the 
the way what they see, they're seeing it for the first time and they have no idea where it's going to go. So while I know and Owen knows and the bullies know what's about to happen, nobody else knows. Um, and because it's just sort of happening randomly and who knows, maybe I get punched in the face or, you know, like who knows what's going to happen. Everybody's kind of on their feet like, what's going to happen this take? Like, what's going to happen this time? So, But they know not to intervene, right? Like they're not like... Because no, you could say no, that they that's do like anything. a sociological thing, like no one's bothering to step in and help out. Well, I, you know, like we didn't instruct people not to do yeah. that. Yeah. Every, yeah. All, everybody was just like, okay, you're in school, you're in school. The idea I was mean, just like, no matter what happens, roll with it, react naturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that nobody goes in and helps these kids, I mean, I think that's how it works. Yeah. I think if you go into a high school. Yeah, no one wants to. You just keep your head down. But sometimes it would happen with people who had no idea it was even in a movie. Yeah. Yeah, like, like that old guy. Yeah. yeah so like, we had extras throw you know background guys our friends like throwing rocks at these guys and then uh, he didn't then, do much he just kind of <laughs> sat back and was kind of like he, he did ask if you needed help yeah. yeah he was just confused <laughs> he just confused the way most of the people were and he was even more confused when you go up to him afterwards and you're like will you sign this <laughs> <laughs> so it's a found footage film and there's kind of like a documentary quality but it sounds like you're shooting it like a documentary like you're shooting a lot of footage and 100 percent yeah i don't it's not a found footage film in our opinion like it is it is this sort of this 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 area that we call just like our, the show we made Nirvana the yeah. band. It's just a fake documentary, like it's as though, like the war room was faked. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's our approach all the time. We very much take the mindset of the documentary filmmakers making this film, and every decision that we make in terms of coverage is all from that mindset. So we ne- we would never do something like where we would get the footage from a security camera or we would get the footage from somebody's cell phone like. It never the, the filmmaker is always in control of the A camera, the B camera, and we only use that. Um, in this film, we use some of Matt's cameras as well, but Matt is the filmmaker, so that that counts. So, and I think because in the movie we see Matt editing the material, I think it 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 sort of calls attention to the fact that it's not really a found footage movie because the movie is so manicured and so and constructed, constructed, yeah. and constructed with a point of view, which is something that we think which we really like, which you don't see in many films. Like very rarely, I mean, it's almost seen as a failing in a film when you can see the director's Mm. voice. But our approach, at least with this film and with this next film that we're making, is if the director is a character in the film. The main character. The main character, yeah. Then then every editing decision becomes quite rich because his decisions are thematic decisions, not just technical decisions. So the dirties, we definitely, definitely wanted to to explore that, and this next film is the same way. It seems like there's another good comparison, which would be uh, Man Bites Dog, because Huge. the cameraman, the cameramen, are kind of complicit at a certain point, and they're also, you say the decision of the director is obvious, but there's also like those shots where it seems like maybe the camera person is picking something up that they weren't instructed to film necessarily. So you kind of become aware as a, an audience member that there are decisions being made by the camera operators and especially by the end of the film like it gets blurry yeah. well man bites dog was the that was the like the, the first stone the, the yeah. first stone in this building was Josh Bowles was really interested mm. in that film and thought it would be a good idea based on the web show that we made mm. to try to do something about a psychopathic guy and that's all that's all we had um, um, and we we wanted to follow that line all the way through the difference that we had was we didn't want to show the camera people mm. um, and we didn't want to have them as like actors, literally as actors in uh, in the film, uh, because um, we wanted to keep the audience very much in that perspective, like the audience as the perspective of the cameras. Um, but you're 100% right in saying that um, 
that there is a blurring between who's making these decisions. Like the cameraman getting a shot through a window mm, yeah. that clearly is something that Matt maybe doesn't want the audience to see. But, um, but our reaction afterwards was that Matt is such a yeah. egomaniacal filmmaker that he's like, oh, thank God you got that. You got that scene of me crying in the corner. We gotta use it. Like he's proud of everything because he's such a uh, egomaniac. Well, there's a scene where he's looking at himself getting beaten up and that kind of builds in that reading like that it's like a different person when you're watching it. Yeah, he literally says that. Yeah, which is which is which comes from an honest place, which is which is odd, you know, in a lot of ways. Because I, I, for me, making a film like this and watching these fake moments of myself, it, like there's so many levels of fakeness to it that I think what Matt says in the film is very real. Like when you watch footage of yourself doing anything, it seems like it's a different person. In that context, it's real for him because he's really watching himself get beat up. But for me, watching that, watching that, it's not, it's the same thing. It's totally, it's like a completely alien thing where I have no emotional connection to it whatsoever, which I think is kind of interesting because that, with that film, we were sort of trying to chart somebody's slow alienation from their own reality. And that really does, in a lot of ways, happen with a film like this. And something that we'd done for you know three years before this, so it was it really was coming from an honest place, <laughs> feeling alienated by your own image. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think like to, to go back to the, it's very interesting because we've been doing these Q and A's at these screenings, and everybody wants to talk about kind of the, the camera person and you know are they complicit and and you know why don't we see them and who is it and uh, and it's very interesting because to, to me it's very uninteresting like in. 2013 to be kind of thinking about these things because I feel like we're so used to that form like we're so familiar with you know reality television and, and you know stuff like the office and the mock doc and all these kinds of things that came before us that like I feel like it doesn't matter anymore and yet people still are really interested in it and want to to talk about it and we had like the first 20 minutes of the movie used to be Basically explaining, setting this up, and and these these are the mechanics, and this is who's shooting the camera, and why, and why, and now I think there's three, I think you know, I think there's two or three times where you address the camera person, the popcorn, the popcorn, yeah. you you ask Jared something once, and then at the end you're like you're gonna have to put these credits in, and I think that, I think that's it, um, and to me like the less attention you call to it, kind of the more interesting it becomes, mm. and and it really makes the viewer the camera person, it makes the viewer complicit in what's happening. Plus, it's a construction. I mean, Matt is choosing what to show and what right. not to show. Like, he just decided at a certain point, like, no, we don't want to show these kids. We don't want to show the camera people or whatever. Um, but I like that idea of the viewer and the, the cameraman being similar because you're talking about the kind of detachment that goes on for the character as the film progresses. But kind of the viewer is walking a fine line between this sympathy or, or empathy with the characters and that emotional connection, but also there's like detachment that's happening with the form, like it's postmodern, like you're getting like, he's referencing filmmakers, things like that, but then you're also hearing like Carter Burwell's being John Malkovich score, like uh -huh. you know as a viewer that you're, you're, you're emotionally connected to something that is also kind of postmodern and detached. And I'm wondering what made you choose that form, I guess. I mean, that very much comes out of what we were doing with that web show. Mm -hmm. I mean, formally, I don't think there, we, we even experimented 
I don't think there's any formal decisions we made in the dirties that we didn't already do to death right. in Nirvana the Band. Nirvana the Band was like practicing without knowing it. It was practicing to make this movie. So those formal tricks we started doing because we thought they were so so funny. Like mm -hmm. we thought it was so funny for a show to not care about things like copyright or or artistic intention, like taking music or taking images that were meant for something very important or emotional and using them for just the stupidest comedy. Uh, intentionally, like like we don't care, like just showing, kind of showing a, a kind of cultural nihilism that we think is very much in the air right now with, with everybody remixing everything. But then, uh, then the decision to start using those same tricks for drama, we thought was just a whole other layer to this big joke that, that we started with Nirvana the band. Um, so definitely like that, I would say those decisions that, that what you referenced exactly, like when I'm in drag singing <laughs> Malkovich Malkovich, because this guy, that's the only time he's ever seen a man wearing a dress <laughs> is in being John Malkovich when John Malkovich is just saying Malkovich Malkovich and then later putting in the theme of that song. Like those are the things that are more exciting to me as a filmmaker than any other decision we made in the film. Like those are the things that I loved about this, that I love about this medium and that I want to keep doing more than anything. Because it's crazy, nobody does that stuff. Like nobody will just steal a soundtrack <laughs> from another film and use it like like sort of against the grain in their other But it's pretty deep. I mean that said, like you know not many people not many realize people that, we, that we took the track from yeah. being John. You're Malkovich. like the third person oh, okay. who at least has said it to us. Um, but but that doesn't matter because for the five or six people who get it of course. We had that debate a lot with like very specific drops in the movie, like references, and you know, like will this re resonate? Like, does this mean anything? You know, I had a battle with the other producer like over that LeBron James bit, which for me was like, I'm like, that's gonna be my dad's favorite favorite bit because me and my dad are big basketball fans. But like, this guy's like, I don't even know what that is, and I didn't know like the Boy Meets World bit, and I'm like, I have, we gotta lose that. That's idiotic but but, but you, you do you put them in and, and every screening you hear like the three people laughing and that makes or it not even if zero people got it. it what's crazy about i mean we, i mean it's, it's weird to talk about inside jokes like this but what's weird about inside jokes is that the conviction with which people talk about them with one another so matt and owen have seven or eight references that i'm sure nobody will ever understand but the fact that they have that kind of cant this weird thieves language yeah. gives them a kind of humanity that you do not see in most filmmaking or in most, most narrative storytelling because people are always speaking in a way that all audiences can understand. And as soon as people are talking in a way that nobody can understand, that scene is inaccessible storytelling in some way. And I think that actually gets away from, in reality, the way people actually are. Because if you just overhear two best friends talking, you probably understand nothing. Because even though they seem like they're talking like at one level and they're very serious, I'm sure that it's all, I mean, in certain situations, Half the things you're hearing, they don't even mean to say seriously, right? I mean, when you guys talk to one another, I'm sure it's not. Half the stuff you're saying is a joke when nobody's laughing, right? right? So how impossible to decode is that, right? They're actual sort of put, codes. Yeah, really. But exactly. the only thing that mattered in this movie was that the audience understood that they understood. Exactly. You don't need to understand the reference. You understand, oh, these are two people talking about something. I don't understand what it is. and that's But it's clear that they, they do. Um, yeah, yeah which is a risk, but we, but we don't care. I mean, it's a small movie. It's, it's not like we need to make this movie for 10 million people. Actually, we tried understand. to make the movie for 10 million people because we, test, we, we test screened <laughs> the shit out of it, and we just kept showing it to friends, and then we ran out of friends and family, and it was just like pulling people off the street to come. And we probably screened it like seven or eight times, and we'd make changes 
and it, we realized the movie was getting worse. That the movie was just getting kind of like watered down, mm -hmm. and it, it was like the lowest common denominator movie. And then we're just like, well, fuck that, and just. We have to go we back. back. We have to go back to all these inside jokes that make no sense. And that's where a lot of that stuff, you know, everybody would test screen the movie and they're like, the camera people, who are they? And so that's where this idea is like, oh, we got to put this in and we're really going to explain it. And, and you know, it's, you know, I, I do think test screenings are important and it's important to sort of see how the movie's working. But I also think it's like really important to be sure of your voice and be sure of what you're trying to do and not let, you know, those outside forces influence you too, too much. And I think there's like a moment where the audience becomes aware that there's multiple readings I guess which is like the slow motion stuff because it's like it, you can it can resonate because it's something that's so popular with uh, current filmmaking and TV uh, but it's also there's an ironic level when you're talking about like oh that doesn't seem genuine like this isn't something I would typically do have this montage over like a popular track that everything's happening in slow motion so the audience is aware that even if you enjoy it or don't enjoy it both both can happen at the same time and all readings are true yeah, yeah. and and you can see that the filmmaker, the person making the movie, has no idea yeah. what he's doing. Like Matt is losing his mind, and you're trusting him to tell you this story about himself. Like it's such a it's such a crazy space to be in as an audience member. And it's not like we really put you there. It's not like that that Soderbergh movie or whatever. The one about the crazy guy was Schizopolis. Yeah, it's not like Schizopolis. Like I mean, like formally, nothing crazy is happening. Like it's all very much in the real world, but. Because the construction is being done by essentially a madman, mm -hmm. especially as the film goes on, like what can you, how can you trust anything? So, but those sequences, like like as a producer, those sequences were very important because, just like as a movie, it's a challenging movie to yeah. watch. It's kind of ugly, you know, because it's supposed to be. It's, it's it's essentially made by high school kids, and it's all handheld and shaky cam. So it was an excuse to kind of get to beautify the movie a little and bit. And put in those archetypal to, Hollywood moments. Yeah, that make the movie, I think, more accessible because yeah. by like 20 minutes in, and, and we waited a long, we're like, how long can we get before we throw one of these in? And, and by the, the time it comes up, you're ready for it. And then they come up a little bit more frequently. And, and then it becomes a device that as the audience, I think you recognize. Uh, and they certainly help to make the film you know, more marketable. Were you looking for this to be like a story that could exist in any time? Because like when I started watching it, I kind of was like, is this like a period piece? It almost seems like a mid-90s because there's like the ripped jeans. And then it's like, well, no, like there's technology that's current. But then it's like limb lifters on the soundtrack. And it's like, you're like <laughs> limb what, what lifter period? was a late, a late choice. <laughs> a late choice. I'd always wanted to put that song in a movie. And we had a Beck song in there originally oh, that okay. we couldn't clear. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, well, maybe this is a good excuse for me to try to use tinfoil, finally. And then I did. I was so afraid of playing it for everybody. And they were all like, yeah, I remember that night I played it for everybody. Amazing. And they were like, this is wicked. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I had to put tinfoil in a movie. I, don't, I wanted to put that song in a movie for, like, I guess eight years. And I thought nobody would ever get it. But your question is very good. And that's that, like, temporally, we were trying to place this in like modern day, but obviously our reference points were 90s reference yeah. points. And because uh, we're not 17 and 18. Yeah, we're yeah, we not actually that young. So, so we, in, we were not at all attempting to try to do this in a timeless way. Yeah. I mean, you also notice the characters don't use Facebook or the computer to communicate with people. There's no internet bullying, like, yeah. which, is a much, which is a huge thing right now that we don't even address. But we did that because we were trying to keep it all in very much like personal forums, like the way bullying happens between two people, like, in a, we were trying to keep it out of the, out of the technological tropes that people are getting more and more into now. Um, but that was less, 
We did not sit down and say it's 1996. Yeah. Big shiny tunes just <laughs> came out, and this is all they listened to. Like that, we did not think that. Um, we just it was kind of just a happy accident. Well, then well it maybe an unhappy mistake, <laughs> because because we did not. Uh, we definitely didn't want to show a calendar with a date in it. Um, uh, but I think I think the form of the film, apart from, I mean, they use iPhones. Yeah. But apart they use iPhones, they, uh, they, they watch porn. They have yeah. GoPros. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're reading Columbine books. So, uh, so you know, if anything, like it's it's certainly in a post Columbine. Universe. Yeah. yeah. But it's also like that's a Canadian moment. And I wanted to talk about kind of like hiding or showing the Canadian source because you got limited. It sounded like Owen was playing a Hayden track on the uh, acoustic that's guitar. That's very good. So uh, you know that. that but we song... didn't clear that. So that's that's. So not it doesn't true. matter though because Jay, Hayden is actually a, a good friend of Jamie Carroll's. They're on yeah. tour together right now. So that's crazy that you would notice that. Well, the it's because orig- we're like this, generally the same age and just generally in the same. The hazards part, of sitting yeah. beneath palm trees. Yeah. That was originally so the the, the first draft of the script. Was all about that song, <laughs> not a joke. The entire the entire third word. act of the film is literally about the hazards of trying to, of sitting beneath palm trees, and that was going to be the closing song okay. of the film. And as and Owen's trying to learn this song, and his plan is to play it for this girl, and eventually he does master it. He plays it for this girl, and then he gets beat up, <laughs> and his guitar gets smashed, and he goes and does the school shooting, and um, and that was all on paper, like when we just had like a treatment. Mm. Um, which we never went beyond. We never wrote anything past 40 or 50 cue cards. Like, that, that's what we went to camera with. Um, but as we started shooting, we realized that the story between Matt and Owen could not go to that place, and that Hayden song just kept getting smaller and smaller, and the one, the one remaining <laughs> vestige of it is that scene where Jay is teaching it to, um, to Owen, which is ironic because now Jay plays that song like every other <laughs> night with Hayden. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but to your, to your point, um, we, we, get, didn't we, get, we get brought, that gets brought up a lot. The Canadianness yeah. of the film. It's funny. He's not try to hide it at all. Slamdance when they when they programmed our movie and they published their book, they it said USA. They said you know, they published us as origin, Americans. You know, which pissed me off, and I let them have it. Um, <laughs> but because uh, I like being Canadian, I'm, I'm proud to be Canadian. I think it's a it's a kind of film we don't see out of Canada all that often. But you know, we didn't try to hide it. Um, but at the same time, like this is. You know, this problem obviously exists in Canada. We have our own history of, of school shootings, but it is, it's an American issue. And it's seen all. as a huge American problem. And every <clears throat> single time we screen the film, like, people just expect us to be Americans. And then as soon as we start talking about Canada and how we shot the film, the, it's, everybody's like, oh, wow, oh, wow, Canadians, wow. It's like a big shock to everybody. This one guy's like, I, I thought it was American, and then I kept hearing you say a boot. <laughs> yeah, which is funny. I, I, we don't see ourselves as having Canadian accents, but I guess like American viewers, um, at, at least the people who reviewed it online, um, like there's a radio show where they, they talked quite a bit about us having Canadian accents, which is funny because we don't. Well, we obviously don't. Yeah, hear we don't. It. We don't hear it, but I guess I guess we do. But I mean, that was not not something that we ever thought of once. Like we go to Thunder Bay, like by name, in the film. So yeah. I mean, I'm sure Americans have no idea what Thunder Bay is, but. It does just sound like generic small town. Yeah, yeah, Thunder Bay. <laughs> yeah. Thunder Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the but the Canadianisms. But we don't wave Canadian flags yeah. either. But uh, in but the in the same way that I don't think young kids do. Yeah. I don't think young people growing up in Canada think about being Canadian for a second. They listen to the music that they. It was different in our generation because it was because of like Canadian certification, like we were forced 
Like Big Shiny Tunes, I'm sure got fully funded by the Canadian <laughs> government to get released. Right, like you know, like Canadian music releases are they're mandated in this country, so we have to listen to Canadian music, like it or love it. Like it was a part of our childhood, and I think that less and less is going on now because now kids are not sitting in front of much music and seeing oh, every tenth song. And, yeah. Or listening to the radio and see every tenth song must be Canadian. Now they just pick on YouTube what it is they're going to see, so they're only accessing American culture, which is kind of sad, actually. I've never thought about and that yeah, before. And yeah, the Canadian music industry is still doing okay. Yeah, well, it's, it's not the same as when you know the age, of, age of Electric was <laughs> riding high. Um, but it, it is a question for Canadian filmmakers to some extent because like a lot of funding bodies here require a, like an actual amount of Canadian qualities, whereas to sell a film to, in the States, you kind of don't want that. Those are seen as in, incredibly negative. They want to make it seem like it's Minnesota or something like that. 100%. Like, what was that? A Goyan film, The Sweet Hereafter, a Canadian book that takes place in a Canadian city, and then they move it to northern Michigan or something like that? I think they did. The whole, the whole story takes place in Michigan. It was Alaska. No. I think it was, I think it was in a northern, northern state. It doesn't matter, but you're 100% right. that they're sure that you're right about that. They, they might have just hidden it. No, they did. I know it was American. Really? Yeah, because I remember they had American license plates. But, um, but that tension definitely exists. And there is a reason why every single film that TIFF programs, that's a Canadian release, that is 100% funded by Telefilm, never does any business in the States. And it's because of that exact tension where Americans do not want to see the types of movies that Telefilm wants to fund. No. They just don't. There is, there is, uh, like, there is no marketability to what... It's changing. I mean, Telefilm is definitely, especially in the last like year, is definitely trying to look at what American studios are trying to release and trying to fund those films. But I can't think of, like, I mean, there's like probably one in 20 or one in 50 probably Telefilm funded films that make a splash or even have any impact in the American film market. At our it's because at our, of that exact thing that you're bringing up. At our world premiere, there was a guy in the audience from the Huffington Post and he got up during our Q&A and he said, I, he said, you're not Canadian. This can't be a Canadian movie. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't said, seem like He said, Canadian. I've never seen a Canadian movie that, that looks, he said, that looks like this. <laughs> and we talked to him afterwards and he was a great guy and uh, I had some nice things to say about the film and we're like, what does a Canadian movie look like? And he's like, well, it doesn't look like that. And it doesn't sound like that and uh, yeah. But I, I don't know, it's something, you know, we're trying to figure out and we're trying to, you know, we're not going anywhere. We want to keep working in Canada. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we we want to be part of whatever sort of movement is going to figure out these issues that have been plaguing us for, I mean, my whole life. Well, I think it's a systemic issue between Telefilm and the Toronto International Film Festival. Not to not to sound not to like slip my own throat here on camera, but <laughs> it's it see it seems like there is um, like there is huge pressure on the programming staff at TIFF to work with Telefilm in a lot of ways and to work with the uh, OMDC yeah. and to, to, like to work with these bodies because they're, I mean, there's a lot of taxpayer money going into these films. Why shouldn't these films be then on display at our, the biggest film festival in the world, which we just so happen to have? So there seems to be a real line like, okay, you do this with Telefilm and you go and you go and you play at TIFF and look at that, you made a great movie. The, the problem seems to be that whether it's at the beginning with Telefilm or somewhere along the line, those, I mean, what, without sounding critical, like it seems like those I think films, you're sounding a little critical. <laughs> I, but I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be. I'm just trying to say that it seems like systemically there is an issue from production to 
distribution that happens all within Canada with distribution being basically playing at TIFF, that the audiences, especially mainstream audiences, are not taken into consideration at a certain point. And it's tough to get, have an original voice. But that's why, that's why I think what's happening now is it's very exciting because you could just go out and make a movie. Like if you have a voice and you have something to say, you know, we saw it um, with the stuff College Street Films has done with Kravina and Tower. Actually, that's and, a great and example. And to a certain extent, our movie and, and the 1K challenge. I mean, they made five features for a thousand bucks, you know, this summer. So, you know, they might look like shit and sound like shit and the performances might not be great. But if there's a talent there and there's a voice there, that's going to come through no matter what. You're not talking about Tower and Kravina, though. Mm. You're talking about those five. Yeah, yeah. Thousand yeah. Dollars. <laughs> oh, <my gosh. laughs> Hold on. What? There's a reading of what you just said that it's like, you know, the Tower and Kravina, they may look like shit and no, sound no, no, like no. shit. I was talking about they were the not made for one reason. Those movies were made for $1,000 and I think they both look and sound. We already talked about the movies before we were rolling mm-hmm. and uh, Where we, we said that we liked fans. them. We were at the, we're at the P&I screenings of both films. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny how it seems like Donan seems to be in a lot of ways like sort of riding this wave of new Canadian voices. Um, just this last year at TIFF was a great example. That it definitely goes against what I just said about it seems like telefilm needs to ferry your film into TIFF or into major Canadian festivals. Um, it's, it, it seems like it is starting to change. And those two films are like extremely, I would say, not, they're extremely unique when seen against what mainstream Canadian filmmaking sure. is. Score a hockey musical. No doubt. <laughs> well, and, no and, doubt. and just as an aside, whenever we talk about the Canadian film industry, we must exclude Quebec, obviously. Yeah. Because the very movies different. are amazing. Very different. So when you mention a movement, what, or is that what you're talking about? Like this movement that's happening? Yeah, I forget who wrote that article in the grid. Does anybody remember? Uh, it was probably Adam Neyman. Yeah, probably Neyman for yeah, sure. Yeah, he. I mean, he nailed it, he, and he basically attributed a lot of it to to what Stacy's doing and what's coming out of there. And, and uh, I mean, we know Igor. We don't know the, those guys who made Tower, even though I, I really liked the film. And uh, yeah, for sure. Like you know, I, I don't know. I mean, th- those films have a certain artistry that our, that our film certainly doesn't have. Um, but if if we get lumped in with those films, but that, I'd be, I'd there's be okay there's with that. the same. I think there's the same degree of of commitment to form and and story. It just in different genres or, or modes. We'd I think say. that's very sure. Like this, your film seems and, and Nirvana before it seems like they're more in tune with kind of how people consume media now. Like with the jump between video games and. Um, music that you would listen to and not clearing things and things like right. like it seems like they're both operating at the same level but focusing on different kinds of stories or different kinds of viewers even because their films are films that have viewers that are accustomed to slower pace longer uh shot lengths whereas i think that it's you, the european model yeah, yeah they're they're yeah. The older european filmmakers right. yeah which we love so I think, I think what it comes down to is the fact that the modes of production of high-quality films have become incredibly cheap. Yeah. Um, I know Igor made his movie for almost no money. I mean, we went to film school together. Um, and, that, and that was his thesis project in, from his master's. So it's, it's just that the world has turned enough that now you can make a feature without needing to pour massive personal resources into it. It still does. You still have to sacrifice quite a bit, but now a hundred people could do it whereas 10 years ago one person could do it and 
Which also means that there's more competition. There's a lot yeah. more shit to wait. Like like festivals now, they need to screen ten times more movies than they did ten years ago. And hire more people to watch all of the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even though I suspect most festivals don't watch the submissions, anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. But that movement, that movement. I mean, who knows? I mean, we don't. I've never. Igor's my friend. We've never met the tower guys. Like. So I suppose there is a, 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 when we talk to people in the States, we say there is no independent filmmaking happening in Toronto. However ignorant that sounds, yeah. like when people ask, so what's it like shooting in Toronto? We say, well, we know that we're making movies. We don't know a single other person shooting films for no money in Toronto. And that's Which true. obviously is, no, it's a lie. Like we've, just, <laughs> we've just talked about 10 people who are. Okay, yeah, but it's not like we know those people, and it's not like we all talk. It's like there is no, it's not like we all share an office where we have like six, five Ds, and we're all like, okay, when are you shooting? Like, it, it, what's happening is that I think in cities all over the world, people are starting to make movies on their own. Um, and whether or not Toronto has, Toronto, I don't think Toronto is there yet. I think there definitely is a movement of young people making films in the city, but they're not. They're not communicating with one another yet. Maybe this show is the first, is a good stepping stone towards Basically that. Basically, interviewed all at this point. Yeah, because well, cause you, you, cause this is one place where we've all kind of come together, albeit at different times. Do you think there's a benefit to that or not? Like, For definitely. Sure. Yeah. Huge, yeah. huge, huge. You need to feel like you're part of a, a community. And um, more, more than that, other people need to think that. It's a marketing it's tool yeah. to be able to say, like, blank new wave. Like, that's the, the key, right? Like, the, like the French New Wave, those films were not similar. All those filmmakers were making different films, but like it's just so marketable to be able to say all these things are happening. Absolutely, absolutely. So we, we just happen to be the same age, or more or less, as those other guys. But you started with web, which is interesting, like the web series model, which is now is kind of like you were kind of before that trend, which is now hitting like it's Malcolm Gladwell tipping point of like. Like there being everyone thinking like oh, I'll just put it on the web like I'll just make this web series mm-hmm. like what was the experience of of dealing in that medium before? We we were still just getting out of film school and we had no. We were not taking it seriously. We were just trying to make a show for our friends. And if you watch like the first two or three episodes of Nirvana the Band are like awful. Like they're so bad. Like they're clearly done. They're all shot in SD. Like for no reason other than to just kind of be funny. And, um, and we were not thinking at all of you know, making a web show or releasing something for web or anything like that. But we, I think it was after our third episode got released that Jay and I would start meeting people who had seen the show, because we were doing no advertising. I didn't even have a Facebook account. Like We were doing zero advertising for the show at all. But people in Toronto, I guess, started watching, especially people in university. And then we thought, oh, wow, what a cool thing that people are watching the show. And then we started taking it very seriously. And without, I don't, we weren't following any kind of guide or anything like that. We were just trying to make a show that we thought was funny. Not thinking about, like, this is a web show or this is what a web show could be or anything like that. Really what it was is, like, like just making student films that you know your professors would never <laughs> give you good marks for more or less like it was like just me and my friends screwing around using all licensed stuff like where nothing meant anything and it was all just com- completely ridiculous that's more where it came out of and then the only place where you can show that to people is on the web because we had no we, it's not like we were like oh we'll sell this at all we never thought that but it's funny because you finished school like uh, three or four years two, three years after me right yeah and and when I finished school is like you had to go and make a feature like that was that was what you had to do, and you're right now that there's different 
things that you can do that weren't available even 10 years ago when I finished school. So we went out and, and made a feature. But I think the key, the key similarity is that, again, you know, just you have to do something. You know, you can't have a script that you're like, oh, I'm so amazing. Why wouldn't anybody make this script? Yeah, like we live in an age work. where you have to do something. And if you have skill and talent and voice and all these things, I mean, look at Lena Dunham, right? Like she made like three feature films before she made Girls. And people saw, oh, this girl has a voice. And we, we're going to, you know, and Judd Apatow found her. And he's like, we're going to put you on HBO. Josh Trank is the same way, the guy who made Chronicle. He made Chronicle off of like a little web video of like a bunch of Star Wars people at a birthday party fighting with lightsabers. When you watch, it's like, yeah, that's great, and it's quite creative, but literally, agencies saw the film and were like, let's try to get this guy a feature. And more and more, the, the people who are getting features in Hollywood, I mean, this definitely is, this, it, maybe nobody cares about this, but if, like, to get a feature in Hollywood, it's all like VFX guys who are becoming directors, Commercial guys who directed directors. commercials, like really cool commercials. The guy who directed Project X yeah. had directed a really crazy Adidas commercial at like a party and he got that movie off of that. Like you just need to do something. You have to do anything and it doesn't matter what medium that is in. In fact, the web is probably the best place to do it because if you do one amazing thing, it doesn't even matter like, I mean, it can be a shitty Star Wars video that is literally shot on handicaps. Like that is enough to get studios to think oh this guy could do this feature because for some reason that's how they think which is crazy well that's kind of how Fincher's like that was like it's the music video model is being adapted yeah. now to but just even him even he was like a consummate he did like 20 huge budget yeah, music yeah. videos like I'm talking like guys getting features now are doing like just like the worst <laughs> YouTube videos I don't mean like they're bad quality there's definitely a voice there but like it's not like million dollar they didn't spend no, much no, money yeah, yeah. But it, it is interesting that Nirvana, it's almost like it's because it was on the web, it could be a little more gonzo. It could like, it could be a little more cross-media, like there could be more video game influence than, than the Dirties. Like, you can see how the Dirties focuses it to just like film references, whereas okay, it, yeah. like, Nirvana like, is like a smorgasbord of just like... Yeah, we, we were definitely yeah. conscious making the Dirties that, you know, at some point, we, we wanted to release this movie and sell this movie and distribute this movie. And we would take certain liberties. Um, and, uh, but everything in the movie is cleared, you know, and... Uh, There's no Steely Dan, constant Steely Dan. It's very funny <laughs> that you the said original, that. The original, the original script. title of the film was Deacon Blues. <laughs> the whole movie was about, I know I said it, it was already about the hazards of singing palm trees. But, but it was guys, really about Steely Dan. It was Dan. really about these two kids who were obsessed with Steely Dan. <laughs> That's not a joke. Which is the end of the end of Nirvana is about a shooting with Steely Dan flags, so it's kind of like we stole all that from that documentary comedian. If you've ever yeah. seen it, yeah, we stole all that stuff. Um, but I would say the, you're right, and at the same time, there's we we did take that model of Nirvana the band, like use everything, don't care about copyright, like like any influence, like put like, we, we play Mario Kart yeah, 64 yeah. in the dirties, like we do all these things. But it's not being keyed into like the background, right? No, like, <laughs> no like, we, it, don't, it, we don't formally fuck with it. It's on the bottom yeah, corner yeah, yeah. of the frame. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we don't formally fuck with it in the way that we could with Nirvana the band because the reality didn't matter. Yeah. But we wanted to take that exact same world of like not clearing anything and making it seem like kids are literally running the asylum yeah. and put that into a feature because that's a really cool space. It's cool to watch a movie. I mean, the, the, the biggest fans of the Dirties are film students. 
Yeah. Like whenever we screen it anywhere, it's always the film students who are like they can't like they can't believe that that this got made because it's it's every like beat by beat everything that you you're told you're not allowed to do, all uncleared stuff, all shot in public, all shot without clearances, all shot with people who don't know they're on camera. But what we did was we thought, why are those things so cool? They're cool because they seem like they're real and dynamic. So why don't we do all of those things the right way? And that's definitely I'm not trying to say we invented that because I'm sure that's been done before I mean Borat basically mm, did that yeah. but it, but even it, on Borat everything was cleared before most of the stuff they'd go, the, they'd go the to people. the rodeo yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. That, you know the, the big the difference is that street. we're making a drama and not a comedy I'd say that is the big the big difference well is no the big difference is that we weren't trying to embarrass and lampoon those subjects we were trying to use them for our own dramatic purposes well there are a lot of differences yes it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I sleep at night. <laughs> well, nobody, yeah, nobody. We've established that it's not Borat. So. I love Borat. Oh, but, but Borat. But Borat was a big touchstone for yeah. this film. Borat and, um, well, I mean, for for Nirvana, the band, anyway. I love that stuff, and yet nobody, nobody's doing it. It's so crazy. So crazy. It's crazy that Sasha Baron Cohen, to be honest, didn't make a drama the same way. Well, it's, I guess you could say the dictator would be an interesting comparison because it's like dealing with a little bit more serious. Subject matter, well, I guess, still. but there's nothing, nothing so real silly. in that film. Yeah, and and the problem, I mean, for him is that he became a star. Yeah, right. Like I always, you know, if the dirties, you know, blows up, it makes it harder to make the next movie in the same way because as soon as somebody recognizes you, okay, but that will never happen. And beyond that, <laughs> and beyond that, I don't think that's true because people, even if people are like, oh wow, there's that guy from the dirties, ridiculous as that is. They'll well, think still... that you're talking about a band, first of all. Have you experienced that? <laughs> right, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll still, people will still behave authentically because they won't see the cameras. Sure. You always, always hide the cameras from the people you're shooting with. <laughs> That's the big secret. Put them far away. Shoot on like 250s or 300 <laughs> lenses. This new movie we're making is all, it all takes place in the 60s, but we're using these ingenue lenses so that are like 25, 300s, I think. And um, so much of it is going to be like taking place right at the very end of the lens, like being shot from like, you Across know, the thir third floor apartment windows down. Like, it's, that's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. It sounds a bit like, what is that film, uh, Death of a President? Like the kind of like okay, so yeah, that it's it is it's kind of like that. It's kind of movie. actually it's a lot like Death of a President because they use quite no, a bit of stock footage in that movie also, but yeah. with no talking head interviews. Oh, okay, like it's it is the dirties. Yeah, like where the where the the characters control the filmmaking, like they're they're they go undercover into NASA as like a Maisel's Brothers style doc crew, and so they're making this doc inside NASA ostensibly to show the Apollo mission, but their mission from the CIA was to find spies. And while they're there looking for spies in the CIA by tapping phones and doing the whole Watergate thing, they find out that they can't, at the top level, they, NASA can't. NASA can't make it to the moon in 1969. And so rather than call the CIA and say, guess what, guys, they, they're going to break Kennedy's promise, the Russians are going to win the space race, they say, you know what we can do to prove ourselves to the CIA and everybody? We will fake the moon mission ourselves, just these four guys. You know, Kubrick? They, they, they Kubrick's involved. Kubrick's in it. <laughs> Not physically Kubrick, but they, they go and they steal all the sets from 2001. Yeah. But, uh, but Did you see that movie, Room 233? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, a lot basically the same ideas, but... So, go ahead. Going back to the dirties for a moment, like, 
I wanted to talk a bit about like how being perceived as an American, as American filmmakers, which seems at once like it's going to be an accepting thing, but also it seems like it's a touchy subject for Americans. So like, what is what has been your experience with like, audiences and the topic of school shootings? We well, thought it was going to be a lot worse than it wound up being. What what surprised me is that at all this, and we haven't done that many screenings yet, but I'm waiting for that person who stands up and says, yeah. "How dare you? Yeah, who are you?" and and we've had nothing but praise, praise mm. and support from our audiences, from the majority of the critics who've seen the film. Um, I'd say critically, without seeing the film, it's very easy to think that this was an insensitive, like bombastic thing to do, and we were worried about that when we were trying to get money to make this film. We were facing the exact same problems because you you watch Nirvana the band and you meet us and you think, well, here are a bunch of kind of like you know they, these are kids that don't care about anything. Why would and all they want to do is make people laugh. Why would we ever want to make a film with them about something so serious? And I think on paper that's the way it seems, like a comedy about kids doing a school shooting is a tasteless, awful subject. But I think anybody who sits in a theater and watches the film from beginning to end has no choice but to... See. I mean, we were, we we're trying to treat this subject matter as sensitively and as realistically as we possibly can. So I think it's quite difficult to watch the entire film and then think that we had that our motives were trading on this political mm. issue for viewership. I mean, clearly that's not what's going on. And we think, sort of against the odds, we were able to give a perspective on violence, bullying, and the psychology of young people that really is not talked about in most mainstream filmmaking. And I think that, as a breath of fresh air for most people, is enough to get past the soonness of this. I, we were, um, when when that stuff went down in Newtown, we were programmed at Slamdance already, but they hadn't announced. Mm. And I called Matt at, you know, obviously terrible tragedy, but I was looking at it from our perspective and the perspective of our film, and I said, They're gonna pull us. They're pulling us, for sure. Yeah. Um, because if it was my festival, that's what I would think I would do. Like, I don't want all this controversy surrounding this one film to overshadow all the other films, the filmmakers. And they called us that day, and I'm like, oh, here's the call. And they, they were just telling us, you know, we're behind you 100%. You know, we believe in this film. It's important that you're careful with how you present the film and how you talk about the film. Um, but you know, it seemed like it, it made them. It made the film more important, mm, yeah. and it made people you know want to see the film more, and people want want to talk about the film more. When we we did our our cast and crew screening on uh, the Tuesday. I think uh, the shooting was on a Friday, and we did it the, the following Tuesday at the Royal. We had like 300 of our family, friends, the people who made the film. Um, and it was just like people would not leave the theater. They just wanted to talk and, and you know in the lobby and we went to the bar across the street and like for hours afterwards because it was so raw and people just wanted to talk about it. Um, and you know I don't uh, you know we don't think the film has any answers or this is what we need to do. This is how we solve this problem. But at the very least, you know we think that the film we want it to be part of a conversation to start a conversation that that we need to talk about these things in a way that you know that. You know, Gus Van Sant's Elephant doesn't mm. really address, or you know, and I'm actually I'm a big fan of that film. Um, you know, I think it's a very beautiful movie, but I don't think it it deals with this subject in the same way that our film deals with this, with the subject. Well, it seems like a riff on a very spe it's Columbine specifically, like it has a lot Hugely. to do with those, that. Was that yeah. was our big touchstone? Josh and I, when we were kind of putting the film together, would watch every shred of footage we could about the Columbine guys, especially the stuff that they'd shot themselves. Mm which obviously is a huge influence on these films, uh, on the dirties, like people who like making movies about themselves and are trying to make themselves celebrities was very interesting to us. And 
I mean, clearly that's the through line of our film. These, this guy, because Owen's just kind of involved in it on the, on the fringes, this guy who is trying to make this cult of celebrity or this movie star persona around himself very much in the way that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were trying to do with them. So we were very conscious of that, that that was psychologically where those guys were and that was very much at play in everything that they did. They were trying to make each other laugh and trying to and trying to play in the world of cool people, important people in their own films. If you, if you get a chance to see those films, I would definitely, definitely do it because after watching, I mean, we, we tried to do frame for frame accurate recreations of the stuff that they were doing um, in our film, which is which are cool to... Really at that scene at. at the quarry in Thunder Bay. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was like the impetus for the whole movie because these films are in a BBC doc that are on YouTube and, uh, and the, this doc just like vilifies these kids and they're monsters and these horrible people. And I think Josh's idea when, when he had the initial idea was just like, what if, what if we like these people? What if they're, they seem like It wasn't what guys. if, it was like you do like these people of when course. you just see this footage. Yeah. yeah, you do. You think, well, that's just like me when I was in high school. Well, it's it seems like the question for Elephant was probably a question that you had to face too, which is like, how much violence do you show? Like, Elephant's almost like half and half, right? Like, there's a good portion of the film that is kind of creating an empathetic connection with these characters before it happens. But then with yours, it's like, was there ever a question of maybe we want less violence, like end it just before the shooting? Or even more, like, the expectation that there's a bit more of a spectacle, like you see it play out more than it does? Because it's pretty brief, right. told in the film. Well, we're trying to do it as realistically as we could. There's two, there's, two, there's two sides to this question. The first one is we didn't have the money to shoot the ending as it exists in the film originally. Mm. So originally the film ends right before there is a school shooting. Or the, another version that we had, it ends with Matt deciding not to okay. go ahead with it. Um, um, just because we couldn't afford it. Because it was such an expensive effect to do. Um, but then when we found a way to do it quite cheaply, we, we knew we wanted to do it exactly like that exactly the way that we did, like before you can imagine things really get out of control. Because Matt's plan is not, you know. It's not Matt shooting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's not, it's not going with AK-47s and just sort of killing people. I mean, like throughout the entire film, you sort of see that Matt is, this is about, you know, a political statement and it's about killing just these certain people. Mm. And, and that kind of keeps getting hammered into the viewer. Um, uh, and so we always knew that if we were going to do it, it was going to be very, very controlled and very contained uh, the way that we did it. Um, but the big problem with our programming uh, concerns that exact thing. The, the people at Sundance, when we went down to Park City, we hadn't heard anything from them other than that, that they didn't think our film was right for them. But ev all the programmers knew us. <laughs> all the Sundance programmers knew us, and it was quite flattering. They were just walking down the street, they'd stop us, and they'd and they like, would the talk, dirties. <laughs> and they wanted to talk about the film, and we were like, oh, I, we didn't realize you guys liked the film so much. And they all had the exact same thing to say, was that, man, if we just couldn't find a place for it, the ending was not violent enough for us to put in Midnight <laughs> yeah. Madness, and, and it wasn't raw enough for us to put in this new, like, well, I don't know what, what it's called, Nexus or whatever. It's but, like their first-time features yeah. program, yeah. basically. And, and so they just couldn't find a place for us, and it... And it was kind of food for thought because we were like, oh, wow, I guess, I suppose there is a world where we do this incredibly violent, you know, super, super revenge-oriented ending that does get, you know, two billion nerds going, yeah, wow. But, I mean, that was not, 
This is like the most unrealistic thing in the world. <laughs> well, it was important to, for us also not to sensationalize the act. And of course not. To, you know, well, like, um, we didn't punch up the red and the blood. You know, like it was. You know, we left it almost as is from from how we shot it. Mm -hmm. They yeah, were all in camera. You know, on set effects. Um, and you have two people basically getting shot, and it's like what I find interesting is that. The film's called The Dirties, but like, especially with the last line, the whole thing is about Matt, more or less, and it's like about him, and to the point where he gets distracted from even like the act of the school, the, like getting revenge. Like, what, how did you settle on that that name and kind of focusing on these bullies um, for a film that is largely not about them? Well, it, two things. The first one is that the the film is really a transformation from certain people being evil to other people being evil. And that, however subtle, is basically about Matt becoming the dirties. And you can see that at the midpoint of the film, actually more like the transition into act two, you can see the bullies who threw a rock at Owen, they call Matt and Owen the dirties because they made this film. They're like, fuck you dirties. Like they don't understand the joke. <laughs> like, and people, you would assume after they make this film, there's a lot more of it, but we took it out. Like, they, Matt and Owen get called the dirties after they make this film. Because, and it's funny, when we went to Park City, everybody called us the dirties. Yeah. Like, that's just sort of how the film works, I guess. Like, you, you, are, you make something, everybody calls you that. Um, and so the dirties to Matt, you notice that they play the dirties in their version of their film. Like, they want to be this thing. And it's very much about them wanting to control the power systems that are so um, so crushing to them like they want to they want to hold the keys they want to be the guys who get to tell people who who's good and who's not good they want to be able to push people around in the hall like I'm not they but Matt like he wants to experience this power and that's why he casts himself in the role of these people in his film and that's why as the film goes on he really becomes the guy who's inciting violence when he goes and, and, and beats up he doesn't beat up but he basically picks a fight with the guy who beat him up in the first scene of the film like he's making a transition away from himself which is sort of a very kind of dominated weak person into what he thinks is a strong powerful person um uh and so he wants to be the dirties um and then you know that scene, the cake scene when uh he really attacks owen because uh, he's become a dirty he's, he, he recognizes that you know and it, it's that you know it's it's kind of that classic you know like the 80s movie, like the John Hughes movie, you know, even though Can't Buy Me Love's not a John Hughes movie, but like Can't Buy Me Love, right? That's how that movie works. He's like this nerd and he becomes cool and, you know, it's like that classic kind of archetypal story, um, which I think this movie has a lot in common with. It's, it's you want to be what you're not and... Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the film is called The Dirties because it's about who, like that label and what that label means and how it changes throughout the film. I mean... So, if you look at it, like those characters, like the bullies in the school are nobodies. Like they, we never know their names really. Like they don't say anything. Like just, like it would be so easy for Matt and Owen to be like, you know what, who cares about those guys? Why don't we just ignore them and just keep doing Well, and Owen ostensibly does do that. Yeah, he does. Um, but it's about that obsession that Matt has. Yeah. Do you get associated with like John Hughes films, films about high school that aren't necessarily school shooting films when you're like, applying to festivals like how how do programmers perceive you like what what hole are they putting you in that was written one of our festival write-ups said that there yeah was they a put john us in hughes, the canon of, kind <laughs> of, of john hughes kind of stuff you know, election and you know 
I mean, no, I don't think we we thought about that too too. You know, I think it's actually funny if you, if you play the first ten minutes of of the Dirties and you play the first ten minutes of Superbad. There's a lot of <laughs> that the the relationship, yeah. like the Owen Matt dynamic, um, is exactly the same as as Jonah Hill and, and Michael Sarah in that movie. Uh, and of course, like you know, I grew up in the '80s, and like those were, like, those movies meant something to me. Um, and I don't, I don't think teen movies today have as much heart as those movies mm-hmm. had back back then. And I think the Dirties has a lot of heart. I think that's what makes it sort of a the turn at the end really sad is that you really like these people. Um, but you know, I don't think of it as a high school movie. Um, sure maybe it is, but but I don't. I don't know. But as a programming decision, I wonder. We always get programmed as a comedy. No, as a drama. As a drama. Yeah, we always get programmed as a drama, and uh, and they say very little about the film. And it, only it, when they introduce the film, they just say, "Here's the dirty." So they say <laughs> we, nothing about we it. We did though. One of the things that we did, kind of right at the end of editing, was we were thinking about how this movie is going to get programmed and submitting this movie to a festival with no track record. People don't know who we are. They would turn it off. It's after just five like minutes. it looks like it's a it's a joke. And so we did two things, I think, because it sort of almost straight for the programmers. And one was we put that, that warning right at the head, which sort of lends a, a seriousness to all the material that will follow, even though I think you forget about it two minutes into the movie. Uh, and then we put in that, that very kind of Vox Populi stuff about bullying, like mm. within the first five minutes. And they were, I mean, they were pretty calculated moves, sort of saying, <coughs> if we put these two things in the movie, it makes it harder to turn off this movie and to dismiss this movie and ignore this movie as just being oh my god, these kids made this movie, this is terrible. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I guess it served us well because we've been programmed at, at a few festivals that, but, that we're having to screen at. But, but still, I'm sure there are programmers who, who turn this film off. off after five minutes. Because that's, I mean, because it looks like a crappy movie made by high school students. So, I mean, and it's just what it does, so. And there seems to be like a, a resistance to found footage films too, I, I find. Like. Sure, huge. And that's the big thing that we've been coming up against too, like, like even when we meet people who want us to work on other films, it's always, that's where the conversation starts. Like, oh, you made that found footage movie. Can you do a found footage movie like this or like this? Or people are like, oh, found footage has been done to death. Uh, but but your film is, so I mean, that's why I say we, we don't, this is not a found footage movie. I mean, there is a real distinct difference between a movie like Paranormal Activity or any, of, or a movie like The Bay, if you've seen that. Or like, Cloverfield. Or Cloverfield. Like, yeah. like, well, no, Cloverfield is a little different, but, but Chronicle, definitely. So Chronicle is a found footage movie. But I think a very good one. Oh, well, yeah, a great one. But that movie is not, but The Dirties is in no way connected to that mode of filming, and that's not a place where we want to make, it's too, e- here's what I want to say without sounding critical of those films. It is too easy to just say every camera is is ours. Mm. Any camera we want, we can use. Like that, that to me is too easy because you have too many decisions and you can shoot anything and justify it any way you want. Like even like, like even some of those old like Best in Show, even those kind of docs sometimes do that trick. And I don't, I don't think that's fair. I think. Well, those also like, they rely heavily on Talking Head. Yeah. Which our, our stuff never does. I think, I think that, that in the world of fake documentary, the rules are much more strict and much more severe, and you actually get paid back quite a bit but from audiences if you follow those rules quite closely because the reality that you create is, um, is more tangible, and it, it's like you, you, you feel like anything you're shown has a realism to it that you just don't in a found footage film. I mean, I don't, 
I, I resist that label heavily with our films. It's just because it's easy. I think that in 10 years, the distinction will be much clearer. Mm. It's just because both of those forms are so new. Definitely that's what it is. Have you, have you found a greater reception internationally than in Canada? Like, it seems like all the festivals that you're mm. talking about are international ones as opposed to... Well, you? they're all American. Definitely nobody in Canada knows about this film. Yeah. That's something we've experienced for sure. Like, nobody in Canada is interested in the film. Like, we've, we had, like, you know, like nine or ten American distributors interested in the film. Not one person from Canada <laughs> ever called us, ever, <laughs> ever. Like every, Ameri I think in Canada, if you're not, if they're not talking about you in playback, it's like you don't exist. And so because <laughs> playback because cover having, a lot though, they cover basically anything if you can. Walk I know, and but talk. they didn't. <laughs> but they didn't cover Slam Dance, right? So we premiered at Slam Dance, we won the prize at Slam Dance, and and it's like that news never really made it up here, ever. And like every single American, no, that's not a knock. That's just I think that's how. Yeah, there just seems to be a bit of a disconnection, it and and it, and it stems from like if you didn't play TIFF or Calgary or. Like, if you don't have a Canadian agent, like, no Canadian agencies have reached out to talk to us, whereas every single American agency is like, we will do anything you want. <laughs> we will do anything to sign with us. And so that has been very weird. It's like, it's like we've just been treated as though we're Americans through and through. Um, I'm not sure if that's a failing of the Canadian system, but, but definitely we notice it. But we haven't screened in Canada, so to say that... Um, it's being ignored. I, I don't know if that's true. Well, it, it, it'll depend. Yeah, it's only been a month and a half since we since the, the world movie. premiere of the movie. Yeah. So, but I've noticed the same thing, which is that you know usually you expect Canada, like our, our kind of stereotype, is that when you get recognition elsewhere, the Canadian recognition soon follows, right? Yeah. So it's like you would almost expect, following Slam Dance, that there would be a quicker. We got invited to a brunch hosted by Telefilm that Sarah <laughs> Pauly was at. This was we in, in Park City. When we were in Park City. It was actually that... a great brunch that Telefilm... Um, <laughs> what was the spread? It was a concern. It was, uh, it was actually more of a lunch. Yeah, we right. ordered. We ordered, and it was really good. And then we got interviewed by eTalk. E but, was, what was, but I don't think that ever ran. Of course it But CHCH, <laughs> they, they ran a 20-second clip of an interview they did with you um, yeah. in their Sundance thing. But the, the Telefilm thing, to go back to that, it was actually pretty cool, because what they did um, is they organized uh, this lunch, and they just invited all of these international programmers. So they fed them lunch and then basically gave us the opportunity to, uh, to talk to them. So, so that, that was a good event that they did. So they were facilitating international opportunities like just... Yep, for our movie, <laughs> yeah. which didn't have telefilm funding or anything. So. Yeah, which was actually very cool. Telefil yeah. Telefilm is cool once you, like, especially if you do something interesting, that they'll... It's not like just because you didn't get telefilm money, they alienate you. Like, they're, they're quite friendly, especially on the French side. French side's very friendly. A telephone. I'm, I'm just thinking about how the Canadian press, like, it's funny, Canada, especially like a movie like this that breaks rules and is not like, doesn't, there's nothing nice about this movie. I don't think Canada will ever, I don't think we'll ever screen at a Canadian festival <laughs> worth a damn ever. But well, I, I think you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Time will tell. But for what reason? Like, that. I don't know what it is, but we screened this. So we showed an early cut. God, you guys can't hear this, but we screened an early cut to the TIFF programmers, and like, they didn't even talk with us about the film. Like, <laughs> they just sent us a, a form rejection letter, and this was before we put our our, our response to like put in that card at the head and to uh, to put in that stuff about bullying was kind of in direct response to this letter. We're like, yeah. 
I don't think they got the movie. <laughs> yeah, like they just like they just didn't care and like nobody like we screened it for a bunch of like uh, Canadian distributors as well like early on before we'd done anything. Um, like like with slam dance or anything like that. And like nobody people were like, "Oh yeah, it's good." Like but nobody it's it's almost like they are way like in Canada, if your movie doesn't look like a big American movie or isn't trying to look like a big American movie, there's just no they just they they've got no access point because there's I guess there's a How re- edited is your show? Oh, it's not like <laughs> uh, this is going to go I mean, we don't we don't mind. We're, we're I think broadcasting live right. Now. Straight to the tip offices, <laughs> right to the third floor. This is going straight to the tip archive. Steve Gravestock is <laughs> watching Gravestock this small. happen live with his big chalkboard beside him. Well, I guess that's that. I thought they were interested in 2013, but we'll give it to fucking whatever Benninger now. <laughs> we're going to give it to a McGowan. <laughs> yeah, Rachel McAdams. We're going to give it to Rachel McAdams Doc about getting her period. Uh-oh. That's a dig against Sarah Pauly. In case you didn't. <laughs> There's a lot of digs. It's a multi-level dig. <laughs> Sarah Pauly. That movie... Uh, now I, I only see, saw five minutes of it on an airplane, but I can't believe that movie has gotten as much play as it has. Stories we tell... It's like, that's the greatest. What's well, a story about Canadian filmmaking and Canadian media and being in that? It's like, as much as it's about her, which is great and interesting, it's like, it's also a reflection of like this media festival uh, lifestyle. They all, and they all know, everyone knows one another. I know. I know that's what it is. Uh, makes me sick. <laughs> Makes me sick. They programmed it. Was, it was it pretty funny. We we were uh, we were flying to Utah to go to to the festival. And it was we playing on Air Canada. On Air Canada. <laughs> and, the, and it was like, and her movie's playing at Sundance, and it's on Air Canada. I'm like, I don't need to go see this at Sundance. I can watch it right here. Well, it's yeah. interesting because it's available on Air Canada, but you can't see it if you were not flying anywhere. You could not see that film, and I think that's true. It's an interesting point that you mentioned about distribution in Canada is that like the Canadian Screen Awards just happened, and between Best Director and, and Best Picture, you had eight different films that were in, in either or both, and four of them you could see at that point. Like So the people who are the Canadian citizens even watching this have no access to Canadian films in any way, shape, or form. Now you sound like Lantos, and this is kind of his pitch for... The new yeah, but who's, who, who has who access to that? Like it's like well, that's his whole thing. He wants it to be on basic cable, which I'm all for. He's basically like, this is going to be on basic cable, so you're feeding these Canadian films directly into people's. Anybody who has a television basically is going to have these movies. Well, it's an all or nothing distinction, right? Like if it's on iTunes or or, or whatever, you can choose. You're like, I'm going to rent this. I'm going to take a look at it. If it's on basic cable, you're paying for everything. Like you're already you're pre-committed to whatever happens. It just seems strange that there's like this lag between being able to see it. But if you're on Air Canada, it's cool. Like Spotify or whatever is like tossing it in there. Like this documentary with like like what's eight millimeter footage or something like that. You can watch on a small screen in front of the in the seat in front of you. Stacy Donan should start an airline. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> mobile theaters where you can screen all these things like as you fly. Have you guys considered though that like second opportunity distribution window, like what, how to like solve that problem for Canadian films, like when to get it out there, like how soon is too soon? We don't even think about it. I think if we're being honest, we are just we sold to a distributor and we thought we said let them do whatever it is that they want. Like I mean, because I mean, we, we we sold to a distributor that interested us because of because they want to get it model. out. Yes, you know, but it's I, not like I think we, you know th- this idea of. Um, 
of like kind of a joint theatrical VOD release to address your point specifically. I think it's very interesting yeah. because the idea is, so say you open in Toronto. Say you open at Lightbox and you have a week run there. Then that means suddenly you get all of this national press because you get the Global Mail, the National Post, and all of these traditional news outlets that are going to come and review the movie. And then say you live in like, I don't know, somewhere in Newfoundland and you can't see that movie because you don't live in Toronto. But the same day that it's in the theaters that you're reading this review, you could go home that night on a Friday night, open a bottle of wine, VOD, and, and there's your night. And so I think that's an interesting model because you're capitalizing on the traditional sort of press and media that's associated with, with a, a big opening. Um, but you're also allowing people all over the country to say, oh, that movie interests me. Here's my $7.99 or whatever you watch in the comfort of your own home. And I think that's an interesting model. And I think it's something that's going to take off for a few years until the next thing comes along. Um, I think Soderbergh was the first guy to ever do that. He did Day and Day with Bubble. Yeah, bubble, yeah. 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 Uh, and I think it's interesting. You know, I haven't seen it work. Obviously, the traditional mode of releasing a movie theatrically, I mean, that, that doesn't exist. It's dead. It costs too much money. I mean, you know, a, a movie opens in Canada, it opens on two screens, you know, three screens. I mean, that's not how you're going to get people to see your movie. Well, what about, like, uh, physical media? Like, Nirvana had a really interesting physical component with the extras. And, like, I know that, like, independent filmmakers in the States, they have something like Factory 25 that are looking for interesting ways to package... Or Redbox. Yeah, yeah. Like, just at least create, like, a, a physical thing that... Well, we love, I mean, we, you know, we grew up in the era, like the golden age of DVD, which was, as film students, there was nothing more exciting than a movie you loved coming out with all these great features and commentaries and all those things. So we're still kind of married to that. And it's something, you know, I think we've talked, when we were shooting the movie, you know, before we were shooting the movie, we were talking about the DVD of the Dirties mm -hmm. as like the end point, because it's a way for the fans to interact with, with the material in a really exciting way. And for us as the creators to give them stuff that maybe didn't make it into the movie that we loved or, or whatever. Um, so that's something that still, I think, remains important um, for us, for sure. But I'll tell you, like my first feature that I did, the most exciting day for me, it, it came out on DVD on April 24th in the States. And that day, like, it was just all over the Pirate Bay. You know, like, <laughs> just seeing, like, 20,000 Cedars and Leechers on, like, the day that the DVD came out. And it, I was literally in my office, and it was, like, the, the G5 that I had edited the computer on. And, like, I, I'm, like, and I brought it back to me from the world. And as somebody who like struggled for years to make the movie, like that was very exciting for me because I knew it had entered the world and it was out there and now everybody could write their reviews. Oh my God, this movie's gay, this movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just exciting for me because you make the movie and that's all you want. You just want people to see it. You just want people to see it. So I think, I think your question is a good question. We don't know what the solution is. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, I hope the solution isn't just the Pirate Bay. Because then there's, a, then there's a, no way to like monetize that and to pay back your investors yeah. and, and all that stuff. But uh, I think the answer is to make movies very cheap so that you know the money that you can make from VOD and limited theatrical will pay back so the you know the sixty or seventy thousand dollars you made. Your movie I think you're going to see like that that like four million dollar movie go go like it's not going to exist anymore. There's going to be the hundred thousand dollar movie and like the fifty million dollar yeah. movie, and that's it. Because everything else, you know, there's going to be those big studio temple movies and then like really low budget stuff. Because everything in between, it's going to be really hard to, to turn profit on that. I, I remember we went to this thing that, uh, that Tiff did this amazing event uh, in January around the top 10, and they did like this case study of Goon. They were celebrating it as this big success story, which, which it was. And, and, you know, the producer, Don Carmody, was up there and he was saying that like the movie hasn't made its money back yet. 
Well, he also produces Resident Evil, so he's got like a different he does. perspective. I don't feel bad for him. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it was an $8 million movie or whatever they said it was, and like it has yet to make back its money. Mm. And it will, you know, it was on course to do that, but it, it's just like, yeah, we need to figure out how to, how to support the filmmakers so they can make a living and monetize that. So, yeah, I don't have any answers. That's a good point to conclude things at. It's <laughs> kind of depressing. <laughs> the nice dirty is now edit. available. I don't have on any answers. Bay. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, as if what answers could there be? The answers is just keep making good movies. I think people will people will always pay like 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 uh, like the sale that we uh, well we can't even talk about this. What am I saying? I'll tell you about it after. <laughs> I'll tell you about it afterwards, but. There are smart ways to distribute your film so that you can make at least the money that you've spent on them back. And then as soon as you've done that once, you can just make films off of pre-selling foreign territories because you made a movie before, and that's a great way for independent filmmakers to keep making films. Mm. Um, Did you hear the story of Magic Mike, how they made Magic Mike? No. Soderbergh like, met Channing Tatum one night in a bar or something, and they were talking, and Tatum's like, oh, I've been pitching this movie, this is the movie. And you know, it was what Magic Mike was. And Soderbergh was like, don't tell anybody else this idea. And like the next day he called and he's like, he just called a bunch of like foreign sales agents. And he's like, Channing Tatum's attached. We're, we got this movie. I need $8 million. And he got $8 million all off foreign sales. No Hollywood money, nothing from the studios. And he got to make the movie he wanted to make the way he wanted to make it. Well, that's how Hong Kong functions. It's like you get the stars first, then you come up with the poster title. <laughs> Almost like Roger Corman. It's like, that's it. Like, you've got the money. Then you have, like, one week to shoot the entire thing. With, like, no coverage, just, like, single camera, basically. And then you're done. It's like, and that worked for decades. Because um, that's all you need, and you're, especially if you're selling porn, right? Like Snyder's Save the yeah. Cat, like that screenwriting Bible. He says the exact same thing. He says, write a log line and design a poster. And he's like, that's your movie. That's all you need. <laughs> so crazy. So crazy. It's the exact opposite of what we were doing. It's just shoot 300 Come hours. Come on. We had, <laughs> no, we had the poster and the log line. Find, find out what the movie is. You're lying. After six months we of read, We designed the poster. We had a log line. And we're like, it's the dirties. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so we're working from the opposite end of that. <laughs> yeah, we still don't even know what our poster is going to look like. But who cares? I mean, my, you know what my advice to young filmmakers is? Make movies for no money and just keep doing it for absolutely no money with your friends as though it's your job. And eventually you'll make something good. doesn't matter how stupid you are. You eventually <laughs> will. Get lucky. You eventually you will. I disagree. That's not my advice. <laughs> it's try a couple times, and if nothing hits, you're probably done. You're done? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're more critical of these people. This is like the, 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 the like Major League Baseball, and this is like the every dog has its day. Yeah. Like... Every, even a broken clock will write twice. It, does, it doesn't matter. They'll, uh, they'll, they, you're giving they people will... too much credit. You haven't watched as many bad films as I have. <laughs> you, you don't know. I'm telling you, watch an hour of unedited Nirvana the band footage, and I and I <laughs> right. challenge which is you, on the DVD. But you had yeah, you uh, had an hour of unedited the footage. The skill and the talent to turn that. You were Rumpelstiltskin. You we spun it, it to go. No, the woman did it. Rumpelstiltskin just gave her the power. That's right. You're Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> We'll send you everything. Congratulations, guys. Yes. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace.